Welcome, everyone, to the First Presbyterian Church podcast. We are First Presbyterian in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and we are glad that you are here listening with us, and we'd love to hear from you. Um, We hope that your day will be blessed, and may the peace of Christ be with you. Our scripture today comes from the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 1, and then continuing in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It's on page 625 of the Pew Bibles, if you would like to follow along. Let's listen now for the word of God. A man in the land of Uz was named Job. That man was honest a person of absolute integrity. He feared God and avoided evil. One day, the divine beings came to present themselves before the Lord. The adversary also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to the adversary, Where have you come from? The adversary answered the Lord from wandering throughout the earth. The Lord said to the adversary, Have you thought about my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a man who is honest, who is of absolute integrity, who reveres God and avoids evil. Job still holds on to his integrity, even though you incited me to ruin him for no reason. The adversary responded to the Lord, Skin for skin, people will give up everything they have in exchange for their lives. But stretch out your hand and strike his bones and flesh, then he will definitely curse you to your face. The Lord answered the adversary, There he is, within your power, only preserve his life. The adversary departed from the Lord's presence and struck Job with severe sores from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. Job took a piece of broken pottery to scratch himself, and sat down on a mound of ashes. Job's wife said to him, Are you still clinging to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job said to her, You're talking like a foolish woman. Will we receive good from God, but not also receive bad? In all this, Job didn't sin with his lips. When Job's three friends heard about all this disaster that had happened to him, they came, each one from his home, Eliphaz from Taman, Bildad from Shua, and Zophar from Namah. They agreed to come so they could console and comfort Job. When they looked up from a distance and didn't recognize him, they wept loudly. Each one tore his garment and scattered dust above his head toward the sky. They sat with Job on the ground seven days and seven nights, not speaking a word to him, for they saw that he was in excruciating pain. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, blow among us. 
open up our hearts and our minds and our spirits so that we may feel your presence and receive a word from you today, a word of hope, a word of courage. Be with us, O God, we pray. Amen. What do you need? We've been asking questions during this last month in our worship series, I've Been Meaning to Ask. We've talked about where are you from? What is your story? Where does it hurt? How do you feel? We consider these questions because they're a way to consider how we connect with God and with others. And in this time of disconnection and loneliness, we need to reconnect. We need to rebuild our networks of community. We've talked about how God has made us from the same stuff, but we also honor that common origin by acknowledging our differences. We've talked about how we're called to focus on our relationships and how we can be people of presence to those who are hurting. And we come this week to the question, what do you need? It's a question with some truths behind it. Truths we maybe forget sometimes or gloss over. We all have needs. Our needs are unique, so we can't always assume that we know best what others need. But some needs we do have in common, and one thing is for sure, we need each other. There are some people who are gifted at seeing need, at seeing other people, and really knowing and loving them. Someone recently was telling me about their brother-in-law, who was skilled at seeing people. He was skilled at listening and responding to need whenever he encountered it. He would never say, if you need anything, let me know. Instead, he really did ask this question, what do you need? And then he would do it. And sometimes he wouldn't even ask. You know, if you have a certain level of relationship with people, sometimes you can assume. But he would see a need and then make it happen from little things to big things. Maybe you've been blessed to know someone like this. People who pay attention, who are focused not on themselves, but on others like you. Some people are just quiet, humble servants who don't mind entering into the mess of life with us. In our scripture reading today, we hear how Job's friends entered into that literal ash heap of despair with him. The book of Job is an epic book of wisdom literature, possibly some of the oldest material in the whole Bible. It has the feel of being a universal kind of story. And the story is that Job is a righteous man who undergoes much suffering. He's devoted to God, 
But the problem, the setup that we heard in the scripture is that the accuser, in Hebrew it's ha-satan, or the Satan, the accuser, the adversary, challenges God. Basically, God, as you heard, is pointing out how righteous Job is, and the accuser says, well, of course he's righteous. Everything is good in his life. If we take all these things from him, he will curse you. And for some reason, God says, okay, let's see. You may do what you wish, but keep his life safe. The accuser, the Satan, the Satan, then takes from Job his property, all his children, and his health. And so we hear Job sitting on the ash heap, covered in sores, scratching himself with a shard of pottery. And still Job does not curse God. His three friends hear about this and come to comfort him. They sit with him without saying a word. They don't even need to see what Job, or to ask what Job needs because it's quite apparent that he needs people to witness his pain and struggle. And in their silence, they are ready to listen and to hear whatever Job might ask of them. They are friends of great compassion in this time. Because while they can't bring back any of what Job has lost, they can bring divine healing and care just by their attentive presence. By their witnessing of Job's pain, they communicate that Job's loss, all of his losses, matter. His pain matters. We often look at the book of Job, and most people do. Kind of the theme of the book of Job is about how we speak of God in the midst of suffering. It is a work that addresses why do good thing, bad things happen to good people. There's not necessarily a satisfactory answer. But there's also this other aspect about how do we act and how do we care for people when we are not the sufferers ourselves, but when we are called to accompany those who suffer. How do we be a friend in a time of suffering? These friends were like the brother-in-law I mentioned earlier, attentive and loving. And it sounds simple, but it can be challenging to be a witness, to be present to pain. It's hard, isn't it? If you're like me, you're scared of maybe everything and fear the discomfort of relationship that it can bring. And sometimes we don't want to ask, what do you need, or even look for needs, because we don't want to get involved or invested. Job's friends didn't mind sitting for seven days and nights in an ash heap, but not all of us think that's a great way to spend our time. Seeking out need asks something of us, and sometimes it's something we don't want to give. Or we may assume what is needed without having the right level of closeness with someone to make a good guess. Or there's pain can challenge things that we deeply believe about the world. We've heard today sort of the good example of being with people in suffering, but 
further out in the book of Job, things begin to unravel with these friendships. His friends reach a point where they're no longer very helpful to Job. I think maybe they've lost their patience with Job's suffering. Some of us maybe have been there. At the beginning, in the section we heard today, Job is not angry, not questioning God. But after time passes, he gets there. After all, anger is a normal part of grief. Job, in dialogue with his friends, insists that he is innocent and does not deserve to have lost everything. But this challenges his friends. You see, his friends are committed to believing in a kind of world that really is kind of the belief a lot of us hang on to still, a world where you reap what you sow, where reward and punishment are just and make sense. And so the middle of the book is this long back and forth between Job and his friends, and really they're just speaking past each other. They're, they rarely listen and respond. Because it's challenging for his friends, because Job is saying, no, the world is not as ordered as we thought, and this suffering is not deserved. But his friends keep arguing that he must have done something wrong to offend God. They can't stretch their idea of God, and to take Job seriously would upend what they believe about the world. Scholar Lisa Davison says, The thrust of their speeches is eerily similar to what underlies many human attempts at consolation. How many times have we heard people say it was part of God's plan? The friends use Job's misery to convince themselves that life is fair. The part we heard today, the friends start off good and helpful, joining Job in his grief, but when his situation challenges their deeply held beliefs, they can't take it anymore, and they do more harm than good because it becomes about them and trying to feel secure in the face of great tragedy. And so that's another barrier for us, too. The discomfort that we avoid can arise from when our beliefs about the world are challenged. Other people's pain makes us afraid of that same pain coming to us. Many barriers exist to being people of presence, people who lovingly live into God's vision of what we were made for, which is community and connection. God made us to be people who ask, what do you need, and to see need and to respond to it. And sometimes we mess up. As we heard in our confession and forgiveness earlier, we do. And yet, God makes good out of it. And so to share a story today, we have Jackie come up again with a story of redemption, of how God works even in our brokenness and our messiness to pull things together for love and connection. Chelsea gave me a set of prompts. What gift had meant 
the world to me. That was, one, that was the one that drew me to want to answer. And I thought about <clears throat> the gifts, and the one that came to me was not a physical gift. Um, it was God's grace. And some of you have been uh, with me, uh, or I've been with you. We've been together for a long time. I may have heard this, so forgive me. But my sister, uh, my only sister, had a was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, um, when she was 56 and was told she had six months to live, that they thought at Mayo's that they could guarantee six months. Uh, at the end of six months, she got depressed because she said, I'm just waiting to die now. You know, she, she had two weddings. Uh, her two daughters got married during that time. And she went to her doctor, and her doctor said to her, I want you to live every day of your life. So my sister went to Guatemala by herself for a month. She had been to Guatemala on mission trips before, stoves, not water. And uh, she went two weeks and to Spanish school, and then she went on her last mission trip, and then she wanted me to come and her husband, uh, although they, and daughter, and they went back earlier, but to come and see, quote, her Guatemala. So I went, and the reason I stayed was because one of the things she really wanted to do was participate in Semana Santa, which is their amazing, amazing, amazing Easter celebration where they have all of these processions. People come in, they're dressed, they make the rugs on the streets, and then they walk through them, the rugs out of flowers and sawdust and uh, to show that everything in life is not permanent. So I went. We had a wonderful time. The next day we were to leave. And Linda, uh, I was with Norris. Norris is from, uh, was an exchange student. I'm pointing to Bob Swope back there. He knows her well. She's from Guatemala. She was an exchange student here. And she and I reconnected. And Linda reconnected with her. And so we were having lunch, and Linda said, I've got to go to the market one more time. Now, Linda was six feet tall with blonde hair. And she was told by people, now, don't go alone to the market because you really stand out. The Guatemalan people are much shorter, generally. And there was some crime going on in Antigua. So they said, don't go by yourself. Well, she was not to be detoured. She said, you know, when you've got a brain tumor taking up residence in your head, what's, what's this other stuff? It's nothing. So she went by herself. She promised me she would meet me in an hour. Norris and I went to the appointed place. She wasn't there. We waited. The plaza, the main plaza, is where we were to have met. We waited three hours in the main plaza. I thought, oh my goodness, maybe she's been kidnapped. Maybe she's had a seizure somewhere. So we started going to, uh, and of course, Maurice is Spanish. She speaks Spanish well. It's her native language. So she would do all of that. But we started going to hospitals, checking to see if she had been admitted. Finally, after eight hours, and my next call was going to be to her husband to say, I don't know where she is, back in Ohio. 
we had been calling the place where we were staying, and she showed up there after eight hours. I went, I had been just practically hysterical with worry, and when I got there, she laughed. She laughed at me. I've seen that look before. Well, I just let it, I said things that, you know, you don't say to a person that has a glioblastoma. I mean, I really said it. I really just laid it out. I was not who I like to be, but, you know, there it was. So Linda went out to build these, uh, because her goal in life was to take every minute and live it to the most. The time was now. That's all the time she had, and she knew it. She went out to build all night. She was out building uh, these rugs on these. <laughs> with the, with the, she loved it. I mean, that's what she did, you know. And I begged her. I said, Linda, I am so sorry. How can you ever forgive me for what I said to you. She looked at me and she said, neither one of us has enough time left to hold on to this. What grace that was. And then she hugged me. When we returned the next day, the next day after that she had her um, MRI her MRI showed that for the first time the, the cancer had just spread all over. But she gave me that freedom, and, and with that news, I would have felt I could never have forgiven myself. But she forgave me for that, and I think that is a tremendous thing to always remember. None of us has enough time to hold on to this, whatever it is. That was her, the best gift I've ever been given. On the other side of all our difficulties in relationships and the barriers that we have to reaching out and to seeing others, there is grace there too. God has united us in Jesus Christ. His life and love bind us together as one. Love is on the other side of the barriers that keep us from attending to others' needs. A lot of it is about seeing and listening and hearing and bravely saying, I'm sorry, or I forgive you, or what do you need? How can I help? God gives us the strength to sit with our discomfort and our fears and to bravely go down to the pit where our brothers and sisters are. And so this week I want to encourage us to a listening challenge or a presence challenge. I encourage you to think of one area in your life where you could do a better job of listening or of being present. Challenge yourself to listen deeper, to listen longer to listen without formulating a response. I'd love to hear how it goes, and perhaps you could start with talking with one another after worship with that question that Jackie responded to that's in your bulletin about the greatest gift you've ever received. Glory to God and to Christ Jesus, whose life and love 
do unite us. Amen.